This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. A big reason women don't stay is because we've struggled to make it feasible to have a career and a family in the military. And as an example, women are considered fully deployable six months after giving birth. So for many service members, that's just too soon to leave a baby to go deploy. So managing a military career and family isn't just a women's issue. I think our current construct needs to change. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The U.S. military does not write policy, but policy decisions certainly impact what it does and how it operates. A small number of senior military officers can spend an academic year at CSIS and other think tanks in Washington studying policy issues and getting a closer look at how policy is made. I spoke with two of our military fellows, Army Colonel Danielle No and Marine Lieutenant Colonel Michelle McCander, about how they're thinking about policy and how things have changed during their decades-long careers. Colonel No and Lieutenant Colonel McCander, thank you so much for joining me on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Bev. Before we jump into the conversation about the policy issues that you may study this year here at CSIS and how things have changed in the armed services since you both joined, let's talk about the trailblazers that both of you are. You're both combat engineers and you've both broken barriers in your respective branches. Colonel No, you were the first woman company commander in a combat engineer battalion directly assigned to a combat brigade. And Lieutenant Colonel McCander, you became the first woman to command a battalion within the ground combat element of the Marines. So a question for both of you. How tough was it to break those glass ceilings? And what lessons did you each learn? Thanks for the question. For me, when I was younger, I really wasn't too cognizant of those aspects. I was just trying to meet my near-term goals and targets. But really, it was my mentors and supervisors who helped me break those ceilings. They gave me the jobs and opportunities, some that I asked for and some that I did not. I'll give you an example. When I was at Fort Bragg as a promotable lieutenant, I noticed that all the females were sent to the same battalion. It was a topographic engineer battalion. But I wanted the chance to join one of the two combat airborne engineer battalions instead. I know I voiced it to my supervisor, and I believe he was the one who advocated for me. But it was the brigade commander at the time, future General Bo Temple, who gave me and one other female officer the chance to be the first female officers in the 37th Engineer Battalion there. Then, when I was stationed at Fort Hood as a captain, the battalion commander, Jeffrey Beatty, recruited me to become a company commander in one of two engineer battalions at that time that were assigned to combat brigades. And that's the one that you mentioned earlier. I resisted a little at first because I wanted to command a big construction company and not a headquarters company that had mostly um, officers. But what he did was he sweetened the pot and created an engineer scout platoon and a platoon of food service, technicians, medics, and mechanics for me. And after that, I couldn't possibly say no. So really, they were the, the true pioneers and visionaries. It wasn't until I was older that I realized that I had been the first of several positions, whether being a female or being Vietnamese. 
So the credit goes to them and those who took a chance on me. Lieutenant Colonel McCander. Right. First, thanks for having us on this podcast, Bev. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this program and I'm excited to be here. As far as breaking glass ceilings, in some ways, I think it was very easy for me because of all the female Marines and other service members who preceded me. So when I took command of my battalion in the summer of 2018, it was almost 100 years exactly to the day of when the first female Marine, Ophame Johnson, enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1918. So I've had 100 years of women breaking down barriers ahead of me, showing everyone that we could serve well in roles that we were previously excluded from and, and making my path much easier. And I'll include Colonel No in that. She's a different service, but the same specialty as I am and a few years in a rank ahead of me. So it's great to be assigned here with her. Also making it easy, I had exceptional leadership in both division commanders whom I served under, and they treated me as they did the other commanders, very tough and demanding, but also fair. Having said that, I would say there were parts of being first that were tough. I knew that I would have a lot of eyes on me, and certainly some were hoping that I'd fail. By no means most, or even many, and probably many of them weren't actively serving, but if you look at the comments in any article written about female Marines, you will see there are some keyboard warriors who don't want women to succeed in our service. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, Bev, we've talked about this, and she often references Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech. And, you know, her argument is that if you aren't in the arena, your opinion does not matter. That's great advice, but it's tough to execute it when you're the one that complete strangers are commenting on. So I knew that the only way to prove them wrong was to perform, and I think that motivated me quite a bit. But more importantly, I wanted to be an effective leader and make it easier for those that are coming behind me. Biggest lessons that, that each of you learned? So Bev, I think some of the lessons is you really need to focus on teaching and mentoring those that you see that have potential. If it wasn't for those people in my life, then I really would not have gotten to where I've, I've come to. They teach you how to not do missteps. They teach you what, what their experience were like, the good and the bad, and you learn through their experiences as well. And, you know, nowadays, the, the young people who are generations younger than me are just trying to navigate their way through the system. And so if you can reach out a helping hand to those people that you see potential to, then I think it makes a big difference to getting the right soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines to the right place in our military system. Also, another lesson learned is that while working in the Inspector General's office, I think that the glass ceiling is much harder to break as you move higher into the ranks of the military, and specifically the Army, because that's where I have the most experience. It becomes more of a challenge for women, I think, to exert their opinion or influence without the misperception that they are too aggressive or not a team player. Uh, in my opinion, these were the attributes that they were raised with to be successful in the military in the first place, and yet it is what is used to dismiss them at higher ranks. I think the selection process for general officers should be relooked because of this. And they have done that in the Army with so many other ranks now in key positions that I think the natural progression would be to look at it at the higher ranks because at the end of the day, those that are more junior will look to the upper ranks and say, hey, that person looks like me and potentially I can be promoted the same. So there's, there's something to look forward to in my career if I stayed in. And I think we're, we're missing a little bit of, of, of that right now, but I also think that we're making a lot of strides in the right direction. Well, let me follow up, Colonel No, You came to the United States as a war refugee from Vietnam when you were a very small child, and today you are the highest ranking active duty woman of Vietnamese descent in the Army. 
What inspired you to join the Army and what challenges did you face as a person of color and as a woman? I joined the Army. I always knew as a small child that I wanted to give back to the United States somehow for, the, for them rescuing my family from the Vietnam War. And from everything I could remember, it was the Army that rescued us. But now that I, you know, I know a little bit more about the history, uh, it was also the Air Force that, that took us out. So yay Air Force, yay Army. But that's, that's why I joined. I wanted to give back. I wanted to do something more with the, the freedoms and the life that I was given. This United States is, in my opinion, the best country in the world. And from somebody who was a war-torn refugee uh, to my, my family, starting with nothing on welfare and being where we are today, it's a testament to the, a country like this that you can have those opportunities. So it was giving back is, was my, my motivation for joining. I think you mentioned the challenges. The challenges were that, that in the military, there still is a lack of opportunities and the lower promotion rates, uh, which are being studied right now uh, by the services, both low promotion rates based on gender and low, lower promotion rates based on um, ethnicity, uh, and race. But for me personally, I have been truly blessed to this point in my career and have had great superiors, peers, and friends along the way. I have never felt like an outcast with those I've ever worked closely with and who know me. Although I've heard many stories as a, in working in the I, Inspector General's office from many who have. So uh, I'm not discounting that, but I'm just saying personally with my life, I've been very lucky. Uh, the challenges though, are those that don't know me and want to make an assessment, not based on my performance or contributions, but on their personal bias. I know it's out there, but I think that we've come a long way. And so we are moving in the right direction. And my hat's off to the Army for moving it faster now. Granted, a lot of that faster movement also comes with Congress's ability to oversee the things that we do. So yeah, those are the challenges that I see, Bev. Thanks for the question. Of course. And Lieutenant Colonel McCander, can you talk about how the military has evolved concerning LBGTQIA matters? Because I know this is a very personal issue for you. Yeah, great question. Thank you. I think in many ways, I'd say we've evolved remarkably well over just the 20 years that I've been serving. I couldn't have imagined serving openly when I was a young second lieutenant, and I couldn't serve openly because of a don't ask, don't tell. But even after don't ask, don't tell was repealed 10 years ago, I still stayed in the closet for a while because of the stigma associated with being gay. I remember our commandant, who is the senior Marine in our service, at the time telling all of us that we were gonna step out smartly in implementing the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. And I think we did that and it took some time and I think it took some changes within society, but I don't see the same stigma today. And I, I was dating my wife, Julie, and I reported into a unit for the first time as an openly gay woman. And it was at the same time, both terrifying and very liberating. And I told my colonel when we got engaged and he made an announcement at a unit function and everyone was excited and supportive of both of us. And I found it to be a bit jarring to go from having to hide who I was for almost a decade of my career to being part of an organization that accepted and actually celebrated us within only a few, a couple of years. Where I think we still have work to do is with our trans service members who face the same kind of stigma that gays and lesbians did a decade or two ago, even though they can and are 
openly serving and doing so very well. So I definitely think we have some work to do there. Well, let's turn now to talk about your time here at CSIS as military fellows. And for those listening who may not know, lots of the think tanks here in D.C., including CSIS, have military fellows from all of the services who join us for an academic year. And this year at CSIS, it's particularly special because it's the first time that CSIS has hosted two women military fellows at the same time. We've had women military fellows before, but it's usually only been one. This year we have two at the same time. So first question for you both, what does it mean to be selected? Selected as a military fellow, because as I understand it, it is an extremely elite group of people who are chosen. And what do you want to learn and analyze during your time here at CSIS? Have you decided what you're going to study yet? Thanks, Beth. This is Lieutenant Colonel McCanner. So I'll start. Colonel Now and I have talked about this, but I honestly can't believe that I get to be here for a year. I spent last year at the Naval War College um, and earned my master's degree. So this is two full years that the Marine Corps has invested in me to just get smart. And the Marine Corps is not an altruistic organization. It is a warfighting organization. So there is certainly an expected return on investment in me after this, but I'm very much honored to be here. And I'm really excited in particular that I got slated to come to CSIS because its publications actually informed a lot of my writing last year um, and its experts are top notch. And as you know, everyone's really great to work with here. And as someone that spent a lot of time strictly in Marine Corps units, I love that every service sent at least one fellow here and that I can collaborate with them or bounce ideas off of them, um, some of the folks from other branches. As far as what do I want to learn or focus on during this year? Another great question, but that is one that I struggle with because there's just so much going on here every day. And as much as I would love to, I can't be a part of all of it. So some ideas are national security and national defense strategies as currently published. The Biden administration is updating both of them even as we speak, but they have yet to be published. But they both focus on great power competition with Russia and China. So I'm interested in looking at that, in particular, how both countries use gray zone activities short of war to achieve their objectives and how we can counter that with whole of government, not just military approach. I'm interested in the Arctic and hoping to look at how we can better compete there because we are an Arctic nation, but we don't prioritize a region like Russia and increasingly China are doing. I'm also interested, you know, after a 20-year war in which our military failed to achieve its strategic objectives and what we can learn from that failure or more correctly, those series of failures. So that's just a start, but I think that's going to keep me busy this year. Colonel No, I think the intent for me being here this year, I'm a chief of staff of the Army a military fellow. So we're a small group uh, of about five military fellows here, uh, four in the D.C. area, one in New York. And then we've got three sergeants majors who all are also part of the chief of staff of the Army's military fellow group. And so for us, it's to bring back, uh, in my opinion, policy ideas to the operational force and to expand not just my knowledge base, but the knowledge base of the military as well. And, and here for me, it's the Army. Also, it's to build better civilian military, or we call it CivMil, understanding and experiences. So this gives me an opportunity to sit and talk to so many of these prestigious fellows here at CSIS and to learn from them, to see what's important outside of my small community. It's a large army community, but small in the, in the aspect that of worldly affairs, we are just focused very much on what we do operationally, strategically. But there's a whole nother policy world out there that also affects us. So to learn about all these different areas has 
uh, broaden my understanding so far, and I've only been here a little little bit um, of the time. So I can't wait to finish off this year and really see what other knowledge I can can garner and gain. And then on top of that, I hope to write and research uh, while I'm here. Uh, so my interests here are many of the same interests that Michelle has as well. She and I are in a lot of the working groups together. So she's mentioned a lot of the ones that um, I'm already focused on. But on top of what she said, I'm also interested in migration, uh, the Afghan refugees. So doing that, some war games as well. Uh, Michelle's part of those war games. And I think that we can collectively learn from each other and also the CSIS fellows and have a great opportunity this year. Well, you mentioned policy, and certainly the military does not write policy, but it is very impacted by the decisions concerning policy. So how does policy impact the work that you do on the ground? And how do you think this experience is going to help you understand the larger policy picture? Yeah, so this is Colonel Ngo again. So policy drives our strategic and operational posture and missions. It can change in varying degrees, depending on the urgency and the pressure that we get. And it can change drastically during changes of administration. So I think it's a good thing that policy drives what we do, but sometimes it makes it also more difficult because it's, it's really difficult to, sh- to steer a ship, so to speak, this large. And so sometimes it takes that oversight, the congressional oversight, to help us shift. And I'll give you an example. The Fort Hood Independent Review Committee was an independent committee that was sent down to Fort Hood after uh, Vanessa Guillen's death. And at that time, they came out with a, a lot of recommendations on how the, the Army could better its posture and stance on sexual assault, sexual harassment, cohesion of teams. And it changed a lot of the direction where we were going. And I think it's absolutely for a, a good thing that this came down because or else we probably would have changed ourselves in a slightly lesser degree than what we're doing right now. And, and how much focus and how much resources we're putting into some of these troubled areas that the military has, um, has been looking at, such as sexual harassment. Harassment hasn't been as cle- clearly defined as sexual assault. So we're, we're taking a deeper, the Army's taking a deeper look into that, as, as I'm sure the other services are. Things like suicide prevention. All those areas are you know, non-cohesive areas that play a big part in how we accomplish our missions. If these areas are not considered taken care of, then our mission will be tougher. So I think that um, although we don't write policy and, and we implement the policy that we're given, we're impacted a lot by it. We're impacted by the resourcing, the budgets, the technologies, all those things are, of course, come down from the higher levels of civilian authority and we implement it. And so, I think that this is the way the system was meant to be, and it's working for us right now. You mentioned the issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault, and I'm going to 
I'm going to go ahead and skip right to that and and jump right in because I want to talk about what the military needs to do to attract more women so that there can be a pipeline to leadership to follow in the footsteps and in the footpath that both of you have charted. So how can the military do a better job in recruiting women? Did they first and foremost have to address the issue of sexual assault, sexual harassment? I read a story back in August in the New York Times that said at least one in four women in the military have reported being sexually assaulted. Yep. So this is Lieutenant Colonel McCander. So I think I don't know how much of the hesitancy to join has to do with that, but I'm pretty sure the military's rather public struggle holding some offenders to account hasn't helped. And, you know, when you're recruiting 17 and 18 year olds, you aren't just recruiting them, you're recruiting their parents and parents want to make sure their children are taken care of. And I think punishing sex offenders is definitely a part of that. Anecdotally, I've seen a huge transformation in how we talk about and treat victims and how we hold predators accountable. And I hope that translate translates into more trust uh, with our institution. And I think it is certainly a focus for the services to address it. And I think sometimes service member members will bristle at Congress getting involved in military business, but that's their job. And in this case, I think congressional scrutiny made us look very hard at assault and harassment and make the necessary changes to keep faith with, with our Marines and other service members. What do you think are the major initiatives and policy changes that have made the biggest difference for the inclusion of women in the military? Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel McCander and I were talking about this. The biggest change for us has been the inclusion of the military into all all jobs. It gives us those opportunities that we didn't have before. Of course not every female are going to go out and, and try out for Special Forces or Delta Force, Navy SEALs. But for those who can, definitely give them the opportunity to try. And I think that's what the policy that's put in place right now affords us the opportunity to do is to, to try and challenge ourselves to be the best we can. And those things that are interest us, obviously, we're going to work harder for. So if I was interested in, in being a special forces member, I'm going to train to do that. And given that opportunity, uh, at a younger age, there are certain things that I definitely would have tried to do. Uh, such as sapper school, if I had been allowed to do it at the time. Um, maybe not ranger school, but who knows? Maybe if I made it through sapper school, I would have had the confidence to make it through ranger school. But I don't know because at the time I wasn't allowed that opportunity. So I think opening those areas up for females just gives us so many more opportunities to succeed in, uh, in the military. Totally agree with what she said. Um, I've always believed the restrictions of women serving in certain specialties was nonsense and based on a lot of faulty assumptions. And I think saying that someone is too short or too weak or too slow to do something is reasonable because you are associated with standards, but saying that someone can't do it just because they're female, disassociated from any standards whatsoever is really kind of silly to think about it. So now because of that, that um, restriction has been lifted, women have the same opportunity to compete as men do. The other question I have for you concerning retention in the military, I, I've read that women who do join don't stay in until retirement in the same numbers that men do, that at a certain point, be it life, you know, life choices, they make a decision to leave the leave the service. What needs to happen in, to address this? Essentially, how can retention be increased and, you know, in what specific areas can the military make impactful policy changes in order to keep more women in longer? Great question. I think 
A big reason women don't stay is because we've struggled to make it feasible to have a career and a family in the military. And obviously some can succeed at it. You can look at Colonel No and her family as an example. But for many great Marines, the balance ends up being too hard so that they don't stay beyond their initial obligation. And as an example, women are considered fully deployable six months after giving birth. So for many service members, that's just too soon to leave a baby to go deploy. So managing a military career and family isn't just a women's issue. I think our current construct needs to change. Right now, service members move every three or so years to locations that are a lot of times far from any type of support system and often with subpar school systems. And that really has meant a lot of quality talent has just looked elsewhere. But the good news is the Marine Corps and the other services are looking to adjust our model to account for this, acknowledging that we're not exclusively single income families and that we may have to adjust the way that we recruit in order to retain higher quality individuals. So I'm excited to see some of the new initiatives. Within the Marine Corps, our Commandant is coming out with a concept he's calling Talent Management 2030. And I've listened to some of the speeches he's given and I'm excited because it, I mean, he is talking about revolutionary changes to the manpower model we've had in place since the Vietnam War. So I'm excited about that. It's been a, several areas have been difficult for me as I grew up the ranks, uh, especially childcare. So that's, that was a big one. I've had three children and uh, along the way, it was difficult to come back to work, get back into physical shape after um, having each child. It was easier with the younger child as, and I just had my last child at age 45. So that was difficult. He was two months old when I took brigade command. But during that year, when I had brigade command in Hawaii, I went through 11 childcare providers just for, for him. And it was difficult, you know, I, I, at one point, Someone said, hey, why don't you just tell them that you're a brigade commander and then, you know, get put up at the top of the list for childcare. And, and I said, well, first of all, there are a lot of enlisted soldiers out there that don't have the money or resources to go off base and find childcare. So before I take somebody's slot, I am going to try to find childcare for myself. But I went through 11 childcare providers. I mean, that's, if it's so difficult for me to do it, I'm sure that other women and men find difficulty with childcare as well. But um, so that was problematic. Um, so retaining women who, you know, there's a decision also. So if you do military, then one of the two of you, if you're having a hard time making the family work, one or the two of you will have to get out of the military. And typically that person in the past have been the female. The female would get out and the male would stay in the military. And that's a family decision. But if there can be ways that both can stay in, making childcare more accessible, making childcare earlier, it's hard to find childcare at five o'clock in the morning or in the middle of the night if you, if you have the night shift. So all those things make it harder for, for families to make it work. And I think that's why a lot of females get out um, specifically for the, the family purposes. But to give the Army a lot of credit, the Chief Staff of the Army, General McConville, has prioritized people. And for the past few years, they've been looking deep, deep into these issues. And, and I think the forerunner amongst all the services, in my opinion, we're really taking a look at housing issues, transportation uh, during moves, childcare, spouse employment. So a lot of these initiatives um, have been started through 
the army and, and, and making everything better, hopefully, for females and families and males. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of single, uh, single male soldiers and officers in, in the military, too. And uh, just the support that the military can give these families so we can retain quality people instead of having them get out of the military well before their time. And oh, also, it costs hundreds and thousands of dollars to create and educate soldiers and officers up to certain levels. So instead of losing that investment, uh, we, we need to do things to focus on the family and, uh, and keep good individuals uh, within our ranks. As we come to the end of our time here, I, I want to ask you both one last question about, you both mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, leadership and mentoring. So how do you help the next generation of women leaders achieve their goals? Yeah, it's Lieutenant Colonel McCander. Thanks, Bev. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm still serving is because of the impact I have on Marines coming behind me and helping to mentor them and make them better leaders. And I have had and, and continue to have amazing mentors for me who have helped me. And I think, you know, part of leadership is paying that forward. But I am an equal opportunity mentor and I'll help anyone who asks regardless of whether or not they look like me. But I think the best way to help the next generation of female leaders is to be there as a mentor and to continue to perform as long as we're serving. So Colonel Noah and I stand on the shoulders of giants and the young future you know, female artillery officer or infantry officer who will one day command a regiment or maybe serve as commandant can do so because of the hard work of our generation and, and those preceding us. And then I think we need to get out of their way. I've worked with many of these young officers and I'm excited to see what they do during their careers because they are some exceptional officers that are coming up behind us. Colonel No, you got the last word. Thanks, Bev. So I think number one, we need to really take a look at the pipeline of women coming up through the military. If that pipeline is small, say, say that 16% are f- of females in the military. Okay, so if, if we assess only 16%, by the time they get up to the higher ranks, that, there's a, a huge attrition. And so we need to assess more women, quality women, and then kind of follow them through their careers and make sure that there are not any artificial uh, impediments to their path for success. And then, and exactly what Michelle said, we just need to actively go mentor and and train those individuals that we see that have potential. And exactly right what she said, that there are males that we mentor all the time as well. And they come and seek us out, which is great. And they come and seek us out because of something we've said, something they've seen, or just because you're in their organization. And so we need to give them the time. Don't dismiss them. Give them your ear and really and truly listen to what they have to say. Because what you say can be as impactful as the Colonel Beatties and, and General uh, Temples of my day and without you even knowing it. So something that you can say could influence the rest of their life, some advice, some tidbit. And so just, just be cognizant of that. And, and I think that the next gener- generation of women have a good path forward because a lot of people in the military now and Congress are looking at ways of making it better for those to succeed without uh, artificial impediments um, in their way. 
Colonel No, Lieutenant Colonel McCander, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. And I know that it's sometimes controversial to say, but thank you very much for your service. Thanks, Bev, and thank you to CSIS. I think this is a fantastic organization, and I'm looking forward to being a constructive member this next year. Thank you for the opportunity, Bev. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.